All right, well, let's do this. Let's stand as we get ready to read God's word. We are in the book of First Thessalonians. We are making our way through this awesome book, one of Paul's first letters, and kind of looking at the transformative power of the gospel as it was going into some unreached places that had never heard about Jesus, and we watched as it's being transformed. So let's pick it up in First Thessalonians chapter 1 as we kind of move into part two of our message that we started last week. Let's begin here in verse five. I'll read the odd and we can read the highlighted or even verses together. So here we go, verse five. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and in Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You guys can have a seat. And so as I mentioned, we began here in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul is riding back to this major capital city center, if you will. This is one of the capital cities in Greece. But here Paul is on a second missionary journey. And kind of like Star Trek, the gospel is going where no man has gone before, right? Like Paul is going into these unreached territories. And here as the message of Jesus, who he is, what he's done is going out. We're seeing an impact, not only an impact, but but like it said, what happened there in Thessalonica was actually ringing out throughout Greece. What's interesting, though, is Paul was only there about three weeks before he got kicked out of the city. And so there was much that Paul still wanted to encourage and fan the flame. There were questions like, wait, when is Jesus coming back? What does that look like? Did we miss it? What about this thing that you said? And so as we read in Paul's letter here in 1 Thessalonians, we're watching as he's addressing some of these questions to this early church. And one of the things that, um, that we can look at both for the church in Thessalonica and here in Fullerton in Orange County, we're asking, Lord, just as you worked in that city, what do you want to do in our city? Especially when it seems so overwhelming. Many of you guys know for years, my family and I lived over in Europe. We got to serve as missionaries there in a cross-cultural setting. And while we were there in Europe, I had the privilege of visiting a number of other countries and being a part of some of these works that Calvary Chapel was doing, you know, in in Africa and the Middle East and in Europe and Asia. And uh, one of the, the conferences that I was able to be there for the very first conference that we were doing was the very first Middle East conference as, you know, we were looking to see, all right, God, what's this foothold that you're wanting to do in the Middle East. And so it was held in Jordan because Jordan kind of had enough freedom so some of us churches could gather what was needed is out of this conference. Had a good friend who ended up planting a church there in Jordan. But while we were there, we got to spend some time with a number of uh, pastors who were already ministering in the Middle East and they're just praying, gathering, asking the Lord what he was going to do. But uh, beyond being able to meet with other pastors, we wanted to kind of see some of the different things that are going on, you know, there in country. And so one of the missionaries there, Dirk, German guy, he had been living kind of in the the center 
of uh, of Jordan, not up in Amman where we were holding the, the conference, but down in Moab. And so he invited us to come out and, uh, you know, have some fellowship, spend a night out here kind of in the middle as we were going to head all the way down to Petra and go see some stuff down there. And so we're like, all right, let's go. So we've got our team and we're down there in kind of more of the, the villages, the small towns and hospitality is big in Middle Eastern culture. And I love that about the Middle Eastern culture. So while we were there, um, he had a couple of neighbors who had offered, now granted, we are in a completely Muslim context. You know, there is a, a mosque right there and the, the call to prayer, all of these different things. And so they had offered a couple of these different neighbors to host, you know, a, a group of us in their home for coffee, tea, a meal. And so as we come into the home, me and a, a group head to one home and another uh, pastor and a, a group head to another home. And the home that we were being hosted in actually weren't Jordanian. They were Syrian refugees. And during that time, there was still a lot that was going on um, with the war there in Syria. So a number of refugees had settled there in Jordan. And so in this home, they actually didn't have much. The, the gentleman who was there with his family was in a wheelchair. You know, his wife and kids were there. And... And you could see there was an angst, you know, uh, about just, uh, there was a longing. This was the first time that they had kind of celebrated a holiday outside of their country and family. They felt disconnected. They felt distant, you know, and so they didn't, they didn't have much to host, but they brought what they had, brought some coffee, brought some, you know, um, you know, some candies and stuff out. And as we're just kind of walking through this conversation, he kind of looks at me and he's staring right at me. And I'm thinking, okay, this is awkward, you know. But, uh, but he stops and he says, I've seen you before. Now, mind you, I hadn't been in Jordan, let alone this part of Jordan. So to be here in someone's home, right in the middle of like deep, you know, here in, in Jordan was, um, it, it was kind of unexpected for someone to say, hey, I've seen you. And in that moment, as I was thinking like, no, I don't think you've seen me before. You know, I had the wherewithal to just like say, well, where have you seen me? And as he stops, he looks at me and said, I had a dream and you were in my dream. And he goes, and you were supposed to tell me some good news. And I'm like, oh, if that's not an invitation. Now, granted, mind you, right before that, this gentleman whose name was Abraham, he was sharing about the loss, the, the difficulty that he had experienced being a refugee from the war. And at the moment, there was a holiday that was going on, the holiday of Eid. And in that particular holiday, they celebrate what you and I would consider the Abraham-Isaac story. But for them, they don't tell the story with Abraham and Isaac. They tell it with Abraham and Ishmael. And so for them, that's kind of what they're celebrating with family and that kind of stuff. And they retell the story, et cetera. And so that's kind of what's going on in the background. And so you can see like what would normally be a festive time. There's this emotion. And, and as he's telling me, like, you're supposed to tell me some good news. I'm like, well, I guess that's the open door, Lord. You know, it's like, well, can I tell you a story? And, uh, and obviously, like I said, the guy's name was Abraham. The holidays about Abraham were like, let's just jump in with Abraham, right? So it gave me an opportunity to kind of come to that moment. And at that moment, I could have done like, hey, I know you guys think it's Ishmael, but can I really tell you that the actual story? Like, I mean, we could have gotten to, you know, some theological argument. But for me, my moment wasn't so much about Ishmael or Isaac. It was about the moment of the promise, as he was standing there with a knife and God intervenes and said, I myself will provide a what? A sacrifice. That one day that God himself would provide a way. 
And as I was explaining that, and you're watching tears come down his eyes and, and the opportunity to pray for him and his family. And I'm just now, I'm crying, they're crying, right? Like, and it was one of those moments, and some of you guys may have heard about different people who have like talked about, like, I had a vision, I saw Jesus, I had, you know, a vision of someone. And like, I mean, I, I've seen that, I've experienced it. And it was one of those stories that just kind of burned in my mind because I recognized later how easily had I decided to get into a theological discussion over Ishmael and Isaac, I might have just killed the entire opportunity, you know, in terms of what God was doing in that moment for this particular man. But as he knew that there was something that God wanted to speak to him, there was a moment, there was, a, there was an invitation, if you will. And so recognizing that God was drawing this person to himself and asking God, where's the bridge? How can I share the story of our God and his love for this man? As we get into our particular story today, I've been zeroing in on this, on this statement that Paul says about the Thessalonians. It's in verses nine through 10. And he talks about how they turn from idols to God. And I don't have to make a huge case that we are also living in a time where idols are prevalent in our world. Now, they may not look like they did in this Greco-Roman time, but the reality is people still struggle with idolatry in a lot of different ways. People are held captive to false ideas, false gods, false religions, false ways of thinking. And last week as we were kind of looking at this particular passage and we were talking about how does Paul minister in this context, because I think that's something that we need to be praying about as well. We see that for Paul, part of his emphasis is how do I point to the fact that Jesus is greater? Because ultimately he said they turned from and they turned what? To that means that somehow, some way, they understood that Jesus was greater than whatever it was that they were holding on to and reaching out for. Now, as we looked at last week and we started kind of in this Greco-Roman culture, understanding that for them, you know, worship began where? In the home. As much as there were temples and all kinds of, and we're going to touch on that today as we move out into the city, but I hope you guys saw last week how prevalent, how significant what happened in a Greco-Roman home was in regards to their idea of worship. They had a whole list of ways that they navigated this idea of worship. They thought there were like gods and fairies in the pantry and you had to acknowledge them. That I mean, you don't have refrigerators and stuff, right? Like, who are you praying to that the food doesn't spoil and you don't get sick? Like, in every facet of their home, the fireplace, where they slept, what, what keeps you safe? They had different gods. They had a, a sense of worshiping your ancestors because that was how, you know, you had favor in terms of your life. Like, every facet of their life in their home was governed by their worldview. And so we started in asking the same thing, like what happens in our home? Worship begins at home. But you can imagine when one of these people gets saved, there's a whole process of understanding how does Jesus meet those very needs, that reality where this has been your day-to-day -day life every time you get out of bed. Now, as we begin to move out of the home and we move into the city, we understand that there was a whole nother pantheon if you would, of worship and the way these guys live their lives in relationship to worship. So let's talk, let's move from the gods of the home to the gods of the city. Now, 
As we look at archaeologically speaking, uh, here in Thessalonica, when we, when we study here with some of the background material, it says that there were over 25 different gods, heroes, personifications of virtues that were worshipped in Thessalonica. So remember, you've got both a Greek background, we're in the middle of Greece, but you also have the Roman Caesar and all of these other things that have kind of amalgamated into this idea of Greco-Roman worship. For them, there were some key gods. When we look back at their coinage and we look at some of the things that, you know, were kind of specific to Thessalonica, a couple of things that were at the top of the list for them. One was Dionysus or Dionysus. And so with Dionysus, obviously you have this whole aspect of like grain and wine and this idea of agriculture, etc. So that was a big part um, of their idea of worship. Uh, what was interesting also about Thessalonica was the amalgamation of the Egyptian gods that actually from Alexander the Great, when he had conquered in that area, they had brought in the worship. There was this, one of the largest sections outside of Alexandria here of the worship of the Greek gods was there in this particular area. And so this idea of Serapis and Isis, the gods of the underworld and kind of the amalgamation of the, the Greek and Egyptian gods, for them, the older the god, the more powerful. And the idea that they had already conquered these gods, kind of bring them into their concept of subjugation, etc. Like they're now a part of our pantheon, but their concept of like the dead and how the idea of the, the underworld and those governing that, that was all a part of their concept of worship. And so there would be temples and there would be festivals and there would be all kinds of ways that people would connect, you know, the worship of even the, the Egyptian gods as a part of the city cult. Now, for them, particular, particularly in Thessalonica, they had a god, uh, Kabiris, and that was kind of the patron god, if you would, of the city. Interesting, kind of like this Cain and Abel type story, if you will, where this guy, Kabiris, was murdered unjustly. And there, as uh, they would take and offer his you know, body there to the gods at like Olympus, and then he was actually going to come and resurrect. And it was kind of this idea of a patron saint of those who felt like neglected, etc. And so there was this awareness, this thought that this person would come and return. What's interesting is Paul would see some of these parallels and use it as an opportunity. So let me tell you about this one who was unjustly murdered, but who's come back. It's interesting how Paul has a way of taking the culture and finding it into the gospel. And as I mentioned before, uniquely Thessalonica was a capital city. And so it was, it was select for its worship of the emperor, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Like you didn't want to disturb the peace. And so all of these things actually supported the governance there in the city. Like, like the work, the way that you acknowledge the, the, the Caesar and Caesar is Lord and Caesar is God. Like all of these things would be a part of the day-to-day -day life. Now, when we study kind of their understanding, they also had in their pantheon all the normal gods that you and I would think of in terms of Zeus and Poseidon, obviously being a, uh, a city with a large port. Like for them, these gods actually interacted all of those aspects of commerce and travel, et cetera. The thing that you have to understand about them, like some of these idea of the ancient gods, that seemed distant. Right? Like those things, you needed to appease them. You, you showed up at the festivals, you offered these different things, but as you noticed earlier, like with the home, the closer to your home in terms of sacrifices and, and like your work, that was more uh, specifically connected to how these gods would give you favor. And so, I mean, when you stop and you think about this, you mean like, I got like all these gods that I got to worship at home. And then I got these gods that are connected with my job. And then I've got the big gods that are a part of our country and our culture. And then I've got the, 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 the emperor. Like, man, you better not mess up. 
you know, with, uh, with worship of these different gods. Now, it says in Greco-Roman society, cults fulfilled a social purpose by bonding individuals to their community through shared religious worship. Many of these cults were restricted to classes or families, often reserved for the upper echelons of Roman society. However, mystery cults were open to all and selected freely by individuals. Within mystery cults, initiated individuals would experience a unique personal relationship with their deity. So like I said, the big gods, the Zeus, the Apollos, these kind of things, like, all right, that, you know, we, we could do that as a part of our collective worship as a society. But man, if you got initiated into like that special, you know, secret cult, you know, that's connected maybe with your job or this group of people, then you had a much more personal connection to those gods and you could seek them for favor in terms of your life. Now, it's interesting, you still see things like this today. You see people pursuing the worship of other things or secret knowledge or special knowledge. You know, you can look at your cults and whether we're dealing with the Masonic temples or other secret societies of like, man, if you can just, you know, work behind all of these special doors, one day you're going to get to this particular place. And we see that's nothing new. That promise going back even from the garden to be like God. And we see it even here as a big part of what Paul was dealing with. So now, imagine this is a society filled with all of the idols and idolatry. What happens when this person gets saved? How does this person turn from all of that? Every facet of their life governed by some aspect of worship and sacrifice. What happens when that person turns to Jesus? Now, notice, as we mentioned earlier, this is kind of the catalyst of what we were talking about that these people turn from these gods to Jesus. What was it that Paul shared and said that caused these people to be willing to walk away from what could be political suicide, what could be actual suicide? You would be considered an atheist. You are against the gods of Rome. You are against the gods of Greece. You're against the emperor. I mean, all of these things could put you in significant, you know, uh, challenge with the rest of your society and family. Notice as we look back at Paul's writings here in the first chapter, he said, for we know brothers and sisters loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us, uh, of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. A couple of things I want to highlight here. We see it also in chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, and we thank God continually because you received the word of God, which you what? Which you heard from us. At some point, we recognize that the gospel is a message of facts communicated to people. I love the fact that many of you are living out the gospel in your workplaces, amongst your families. You will know you're my disciples by your what? By your love. But we also recognize, as Paul said, how will they know unless somebody what? Tells them. Like at some point, there has to be a message as you think about the fact that people are resting in some other worldview, some other ideology for their sense of salvation, for their sense of security. At some point, someone has to tell them, let me explain to you what God did for us. Now, as we're coming into the season, I love, did you guys enjoy the Christmas music today? Let's give the worship team a round of applause. Good job, guys. But I mean, after Christmas, I love it. I'm walking into places, Merry Christmas, right? Like I'm trying to get it as much out as I can. 
And you hear the songs that are starting to come out, you know, again, I love the Christmas music, right? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Like what a perfect time as you and I begin to look out and we see the chaos, the difficulty, the challenges, the things that people are facing as we walk into this Christmas season, what are we actually celebrating? Beyond the gifts and all the Santa stories that people want to get pictures and stuff like, and we even got this beautiful little spot you guys can take pictures of. Yeah, that's the church team did that. But as fun as all of those like family photos and that is like, what are we actually celebrating? God becoming one of us to save all of us. Like this is the message for the last 2,000 years that has changed countries and cultures and individuals like those in Thessalonica who were stuck worshiping all of these false gods, false ideologies that promise everything and deliver nothing. And yet here, this is the story that we get to communicate that goes back to a promise from the garden where God said, I what? When he talked about as we were looking at the curse, right? And the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent that one day God would send that deliver, that one who would reconcile, restore that relationship for you and I. And we watch as the whole Old Testament unfolds that story. And here, that's what Advent really means, the coming. As we celebrate the coming, the fulfillment of God's promise, like that's what you and I, as we begin to walk into the season, this is a perfect time for us to begin to communicate that we believe in a God that keeps his promise. 4,000 years in the garden, you know, God made a promise. Then we see it through Moses and we see the continue the continuation of this promise. And that's part of why when he went in the synagogue, he began to explain Messiah. God has fulfilled his promise. He has come. Thus the song, right? Emmanuel, God with what? Us. You know, as we began to explain for all of these different Greco-Roman traditions and cultures, for them, it was a matter of appeasement, right? Like I just have to make sure the gods aren't mad at me. And so there wasn't a, a personal relationship per se, but there was just this idea that maybe, just maybe we can appease the gods and we can just kind of go on. We do our duty, sprinkle whatever we need to, give whatever we need to. But the idea that God fulfilling his promise to rescue and restore humanity actually comes down to earth to walk and talk and preach and teach and heal. Like as you and I begin to describe the story of the gospel, we're describing Emmanuel, God with us. And imagine the person who feels so disconnected, who feels like the worship of God is left to some stars in astrology, some distant thought of a God out there. But yet you and I begin to describe how the God of the universe actually took on human flesh, walked this earth, and we can begin to describe throughout the gospels the different ways in which he proved he was God. And if that wasn't enough, right? Like God becoming one of us, but the purpose wasn't just to come in to teach, the purpose was ultimately to do what? To die on a cross and resurrect, to pay the penalty for yours and my sin, to restore us into relationship with God, God for us. Imagine that for the person who's trying to appease a God through whatever their sacrifices and offerings and who can't actually erase the stain of guilt and shame and fear and all the other kind of things that the people right now in the world are seeking after but can't find. Like as you begin to look out in the world and the things that people are worshiping today in the idols of today where they're actually seeking fulfillment, like this is the answer. And as we begin to walk and say, okay, but do they know? Has anybody told them? I love this line in this particular song. A weary world rejoices. I mean, when you look around right now in your circle, 
your circle of influence, family, friends, job, whatever it is that people are trying to satisfy, appease their soul, the stirring in their heart, they're weary, they're tired because the gods of this world, they don't satisfy, they don't fulfill their promises. They can't, they cannot do what the gospel alone can do. And so when I begin to think about the message, just like Paul walking into this place and there's all these gods, all this history, all of this information, and yet he came armed with the gospel. And what happened is he began to communicate the gospel. The gospel in and of itself is what? It's powerful. Isn't that what we just heard? It said, you accepted our word like as if it was the word of God, but it didn't just come with, with words. It came with what? It came with power. And it starts here as he begins to describe, for we know brothers and sisters loved by God that he has chosen you. This gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You see, some of you, we get a little nervous. We get a little anxious about this idea of sharing the gospel, about this idea of talking about God, becoming one of us and walking amongst the earth. And how do I prove that Jesus really was God and all of this different information? You, I was talking to... Um, there's a gal that we're ministering with who's currently right now in a mental health facility and as God's ministering to her, she's finding that in this moment, there's other people in the midst of the darkness that, that she's having an opportunity to minister to. And she feels really overwhelmed. Like, I don't have the right words. I, don't, I can't even put it together. I'm, I'm struggling through all of this. And I say, but, but imagine right now in the midst of the darkness, one of the most difficult and dark places, you're there. And as God's speaking to you, he's using you to speak to them, and she put on a friend of hers the other day when I was on the phone with her, and she said, could you pray with this girl? She's really struggling right now. She just, I just told her that you would, you would pray for her. You've been such an encouragement. And like you, you think like, man, I feel so overwhelmed and insecure, but here's the beauty of the power of the gospel, right? Like as much as we are describing the words of who God is and what he has done, one of the things that we understand, like Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and what? Knock. And if any man hears my voice, I will commend you. You see, as we begin to, to, to recognize the truth of the gospel, as much as I feel like, okay, we get in that cost-benefit analysis. Some of you guys, that's how it started with the gospel. Maybe you came out of some other background, et cetera, and you're like, okay, let me just weigh this Jesus thing for a minute. Like, what exactly do I have to do, you know? And, and for a lot of people, it's like they're trying to comprehend. I'm trying to see if I can hold on to the gospel. But for a lot of you guys, maybe you were like me or like Paul, you know, who originally was Saul. Saul was on his way to Damascus and he had an encounter with Jesus that radically changed his life. It literally knocked him to the ground, right? Like when, when it's not about you apprehending the gospel, for some of you guys, it's like the gospel apprehended you, right? Like, cause it kind of took that in my life at like 19 years old, coming out of darkness and brokenness and running from God. And it was like, he just grabbed me by the back of the next, you know, it's like, whoa. You know, I mean, there's, there's a wake-up call moment sometimes where God reaches into your life. And that sense of truth, like really it apprehends you. And in that moment, you realize that like this being true, it's not just about the information. It's about the person Jesus is alive. And if it's true, he really is Lord of my life. Like, what do I do with this? That's what he was saying. You guys receive this, not as the words of men, but the words of God. And as you and I begin to describe the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, it's amazing how that truth can actually grab hold of somebody's heart. And we begin to watch that truth begin to transform. All right, so my kids showed me this one. Some of you guys, you don't even know who this person is. I'm sorry. So there's a guy, Gideon, right? And so social media influencer, YouTube, uh, influ like a couple million followers, 
And uh, he was well known for doing pranks and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And, and about two months ago, he started sharing a transformation story. Something happened as he was reviewing another video of another guy who did, you know, radical influencer stuff like that. And as the guy was walking by, there was a street preacher. And as the street preacher was talking to this guy that was walking by, the encounter was caught by someone videotaping. And, and he, this guy, Gideon, who's got a couple million followers, he's watching this, kind of commenting on it. But what the preacher was talking about in terms of the gospel, in terms about where are you at with Jesus, where are you at? Maybe you grew up as a Christian, you've denied it, you've walked away, you're going after the things of the world. How is that fulfilling? And all this stuff that the guy was talking, the person he was watching to was hitting this guy. And he begins to talk how this video began to transform his heart. It brought, he said it brought conviction. I couldn't get it out of my head. And he begins to share how that started a path for him to come back to Jesus. My point is sometimes you're thinking, well, I just don't know if they're going to comprehend or grasp or like, you know, grab on to the gospel. Guys, when we begin to communicate the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, guess what? The gospel will grab on to them. Amen. And some of you guys can testify to that. Like it's true that the gospel, as much as we're trying to reconcile in our head, and it's hard to think about God coming in human flesh. I get it. Virgin born, all of these different things, dying on a cross, three days later resurrected. But guys, that's part of the truth of how big our God is. And in defeating the giants of false ideologies and all the things that we're up against in the world, how much more important a God that fulfills his promises over 4,000 years as we go back to Genesis, fulfilling, coming down, fulfilling all of the different prophecies surrounding where he would be born, how he would be born, how he would live, how he would die, how he would resurrect, but even just as powerfully, how he is coming back again. So when we ask ourselves, kind of like Paul, how do we share the gospel in a world filled with idols let me give you another example. So after Paul left Thessalonica, I told you he was there three weeks, begins to make his way down along this uh, trade route, goes into Berea. Next place he goes is into Athens, okay? And some of you guys are familiar with this Mars Hill story because Thessalonica doesn't describe like his message. Like what did Paul say? You know, how did he communicate the truth of the gospel into a world that was filled with idols? But at Mars Hill, we get a little bit of that message. And so let's look at this as we're thinking about Paul communicating the gospel in a world filled with with idols. So notice as Paul comes into Athens, so now you're thinking like, you know, Mount Olympus, all of that. It's that Athens, right? We're into the capital of Greece. Acts chapter 17, verse 16 says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who had happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching, notice, the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now it was said there in Athens, there were more statues of the gods in Athens than all of the rest of Greece put together. And then in Athens, it was easier to meet a God than a man. So when, when it says that the city was full of idols, that's what we're talking about. Like literally every corner, there's a temple, there's some other God. So much so that we're going to see later that after there was like this plague and they were like, maybe we're not appeasing the right gods. You know, like we're just going to send these sheep out there and wherever they stop, you know, we're just going to build a little altar. And if there wasn't already a temple there, thus you're going to see in a minute, this altar to the unknown God. They even started setting up altars just in case we missed a God. Like that's how many different ways of worship there was in Athens. But I want you to notice as Paul was making his way through the city, he saw the idols 
He saw the worship of all of these different gods and it stirred him. It provoked him like it stirred up an emotional response inside of them. Now, I know many of us, we like show up at work and we're like, man, I don't even, I don't even know how I got here today, right? Like you can just, you're on autopilot sometimes. You know, we scan through our, you know, Twitter feed and IG feed and we just kind of go through just consuming content. And the reality is we don't always, we're not always aware of the idolatry around us. We can just kind of get used to it. But we notice as Paul was observing, as he was seeing, like it provoked, it stirred something inside of him to the point where he wanted to go into the agora, into the marketplace, and he wanted to communicate, man, look at all these people who don't know the truth. Like this is a perfect place to communicate the gospel because look at how many other distractions are from Jesus. Let me just say this, as some of you guys are stirred up about the idolatry and idols in the world. The question isn't just what we say, but it's also what? how we say it. That's something that I want you to pay attention as we look just briefly at this message because it is easy to get out my bullhorn and be like, you guys are gone. Like I've been, I don't know if you guys as Christians have maybe been places and then there's like sometimes like an evangelist out there and he's got his bullhorn. He's like, you're going to hell. And he's like, you, these babies you are killing. And like, I understand the passion. I even understand the heart to, to an extent, but man, sometimes it just, it ruffles my feathers. I'm like, Oh, you know, like, is that really working for you? You know, and, and again, I'm not trying to critique so much, but sometimes the anger, even what comes across as hatred, what comes across as like, uh, you can be right at what you're saying and wrong at how you say it, right? We talk about that sometimes in marriage. I can be right and wrong at the top of my voice, right? Or parenting, like, you know, like the, the heart behind even how I say what I'm saying. It should provoke us. It should stir up our heart. But how do we communicate to people who are rooted and entrenched and grounded in these false ideas and ideologies? How do I reach them with the gospel? Rather than just be like, you're wrong. Which is what so much of what happens in our left-right spectrum. This is what Spurgeon said. I like this one. Hold on to this quote. Circle it. Take a picture of it. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. That's Spurgeon. Right? Do you notice, like, in other words, I, I understand that hell is going to be a choice. Like, if you're going to get to hell, let it be over our dead body. Let it be over our objection and our tears and our crying and our constantly pleading. Like, in that sense, do people know that I genuinely care? Because when I do talk with them, I'm talking with them as someone who who's longing to see their soul meet Jesus, not just to be right and win the argument. Are you tracking with what, what Spurgeon's saying? So notice Paul gets up in the midst of this city center, in the midst of all of this stuff going on, and he has a chance to communicate. There in the Areopagus, there in the place where people would contemplate these ideas, where the marketplace, where all of these things would be discussed, Paul gets a chance to get up and share the gospel. How cool would that be? So it says, Paul got up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I can see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. One of the things that I loved when we were in, uh, in Hungary, uh, Budapest, beautiful city, capital city. It's filled with some of the most beautiful bridges in the world. Some of you guys may or may not know Budapest is actually two different cities, Buda and Pest. The bridges connect the two. You guys refer to it as Budapest. But when you're there, it's the Buda side and the Pest side. And there's these beautiful bridges that actually connect both of them to make the city that you and I would call Budapest. 
And I wonder if as we begin to think about reaching those people who are kind of entrenched in their ideology and false thinking, like how often we need to be that bridge that is connecting the truth of the gospel, right? To right where they're at. Notice that Paul was looking for a bridge to say, okay, I can see that you are a religious people. And he begins to look out there and says, let me tell you about this unknown God. Like he's looking for an open door to begin to communicate the gospel to them rather than just, all right, you are all going to hell. That might have just ended the conversation. Maybe it would have worked. But as we're looking at Paul and, you know, and he communicated different ways to different people. And so I recognize that. But here in this place, in a city full of idols, he was looking for a bridge, a place that he could kind of launch the gospel from. Let me tell you about this unknown God. But notice as he describes this idea of religiousness, he speaks to something that's going on in their hearts. He talks about these people who are basically fearful, superstitious, right? Because at the end of the day, these gods will never satisfy the way that Jesus does. Why? Because you can only appease them. You can only hope to appease them. You can only hope that your offering or this is granting you some kind of favor. And imagine day after day, month after month, just going through this with no assurance, no sense of peace, no sense of under, like understanding. You know how many times I've communicated the gospel to people who are still stuck in that religious ideology? who have no hope of heaven, have no sense of security. You know, talking to someone who's maybe Muslim, I've talked to people who are in different denominations, if you will, some people who like are Catholic, who have like this lack of assurance, like this idea that I'm actually gonna get to go to heaven and my heart breaks because for them, it, they're, they're religious. They do all of these different things and yet there's no assurance. They're just like hoping that I satisfied some thing. And so Paul says, I can see that you are all very religious, that you're trying so hard to approve your gods. You're trying so hard, so desperate, you know, to actually like be heard, to, to have this sense of assurance. As you begin to look out in the world today and you see the very same thing, like what people are looking to because they're trying to satisfy something so deep, so, so ingrained in their very heart, you know, do we have eyes to see the idols and idolatry of today? Now, this is filled with a couple of different things that you can see that people put their hope and security in. Right? For some, it's career. For some, it's family. For some, it's money. For some, it's culture. It's power. It's approval. But there's all kinds of things that people are looking to, that they're willing to make sacrifices for. Right? Like, I'm willing to sacrifice my kids and my family on the altar of career. I just have to get here. You know, or my marriage. Or all number of different things that people are like, if I can just get to this. If I can just have that. Am I aware of the idolatry of today, because as you and I go out and communicate the gospel, joy to the world, the Lord has come. What am I speaking to that's going on in their hearts and minds? Tim Keller wrote this, it was a great book, the, the book on counterfeit gods. It does a great job communicating the gospel to those needs that are kind of under some of this idea of idolatry. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Again, you know, we've got to move past the trinkets and little statues and things like that. And you begin to look at a definition like this where some people may look at a spouse, may look at a child, may look at a job, may look at any number of things this way to say, this is what I have to have in my life. Another way that I can think about it, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life wouldn't be worth living. Think about that for a minute. If this were to be gone, life would have no more meaning. And you think about those people, stock market crash, jump out the window, right? Like, I mean, this idea that I've, I've lost this, then I've lost everything. 
That means that was so central to your sense of life and identity and being that 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 in and of itself was your God. That was the foundation of like your whole identity, your hope, your security. You know, as we look at kind of that list, just kind of laying it over the, the different kind of things that people think about today. Think about it this way. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if, maybe just kind of look at some of these ideologies. If I have power and influence over others, then maybe there's some power idolatry. Like I have to be in this position of power and control. Um, My life only has meaning. I only have worth if what? If I am loved and respected by fill in the blank. You know, you hear people like who spend hours and hours scrolling and they have to have all of these different hearts and like, like in other words, their their life has no joy, has no purpose, has no meaning. Like if all of that were to go away, it's like, (gasps) What am I even doing? If Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me, right? Like I have to pursue that. Like this is my absolute goal, my necessity in life. Maybe relationship has become an idol. Maybe it's my children, my parents being happy with me. I've known people who will not even consider Christianity because of what their parents or their family or other people, like that has such a strong hold over their idea and their ideology that it's like, man, like that is the most important thing in my entire life. I get it. Maybe for some, I have to have a particular kind of look or body. There's some image idolatry. Like if I don't look like this, my life isn't worth living. And they pursue everything possible to look like, be like. I must be. I got to find my identity in this. And we, we see that conversation all the time centered around identity. But what if identity is really idolatry? That's the thing that defines me. And so when we begin to look through the lens of scripture, we see that oftentimes there's fruit and root issues of sin. What I mean by that is like we sometimes see the fruit of sin. We see the stuff on the outside, right? The lust, this idea that I have to be perfect, this idea that I have this need for power, this idea that I need to escape getting into all of these things. What is that stuff kind of rooted in? And we realize that we being made in the image of God, we are created to worship. And if you're not worshiping God, you will be worshiping something because we have a need for love. And if you're not finding it in the gospel, if you're not finding it in the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done and what God's word says, you will try to find it in someone or something else. And so people try to find it in sex and relationships when in reality, it's like, man, my heart needs to be rooted. And if I knew that I was loved by the God of the universe, that I was whole, that I was loved just like I am, how might that actually work down into those root issues of what I've got going on? These idea that like, man, I've got to be perfect. I can't have anything wrong. I have all my life organized and together, et cetera, who are dealing with all these insecurities. When in reality, it's like, man, I can come to Jesus and be loved in spite of all my imperfections and my insecurities, that the gospel is what makes me whole. I need to be in power. And it's like, hey, that speaks to that powerlessness I have over my life. This shame and fear that people experience because of their own sin. They're trying to find all these escapes. It's like, hey, what if I can find that, you know, there in terms of the answer in the cross. And so when we begin to look at some of these things, we realize that idols are often an expression of our deepest longings and our greatest need for the what? For the gospel. When you begin to look that the people in your life who are struggling with particular idols, maybe begin to pray and ask God for glasses to say, how does the gospel speak down to the root issue of what that person's actually dealing with? How does knowing who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross and his resurrection, how does that maybe speak down to those root things that might cause that person to say, I want to let go of being rooted in this and I want to be rooted in Christ. So as we begin to ask ourselves, how does the gospel speak to those needs? Again, think about it. When you look at someone's desire to be loved and they're trying to find love in all of these different spaces and places and you think about the Bible where it says, for God so what? Loved the world. 
Think about how far Jesus is willing to go. Go back into Philippians and think about God coming from heaven down to earth. All of the steps that he took to lay aside his glory, lay aside all of that to come and walk and talk and fulfill the plans and promises laid out in scripture from 4,000 years ago in Genesis all the way through Abraham, etc. You see how God was willing to fulfill that promise. Why? For you. Because he what? Because he loves us. For God so loved the world. Then we have the God demonstrated his what? His love. That while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we think about how far God was willing to go. I mean, isn't that what we're celebrating for Christmas? So, I mean, like I said, even as we're beginning to enter into that conversation, you're looking to think, guys, how far was God willing to go to show you that he loves you? To go be born in Bethlehem? Be from Nazareth, walk around this dusty, dirty earth, all for what purpose? To communicate this message that God sees, that he knows, that he loves, all the miracles, the messages, the stories. And then when people who are dealing, right, like they've got all kinds of guilt and fear and shame, and begin to think, yeah, God came to earth, that's an important part of the story, but why did he come to earth? He died on a what? He died on a cross. Why? Because, like, people were mad at him politically? It was some great tragedy? No, it was ultimately the price that he would pray his life, his death for us. Like all of that guilt, all of that fear, all of the shame that comes from the things that we do behind closed doors that we think nobody else can see and the things that we're trying so hard to atone for and then ultimately we begin to communicate this is what the cross actually means. I mean, I was someone who needed to hear that. The guilt and the fear and the shame that I was dealing with as an 18, 19-year-old person who had walked completely away from God, who had entrenched himself in drugs and addiction because of the relationships and stuff that I was, that I was into. I mean, that, like, that was the whole point, right? Like, I want to stop feeling. I want to stop thinking because the guilt, the lies, you're like, will it ever go away? And then somebody begins to explain, let me, let me help you understand what the cross is actually for. Because what you think no, nothing could ever atone for, that's why the cross is so bloody and messy because the worst of us meets the best of the grace of God and it's there to transform it. Is there, enough, is there anything too great that the cross can't pay for? So imagine speaking to that, to someone who's got all these doors locked in their life of guilt and shame and fear and being able to say, guess where you can come with that? And we think about, but I'm so powerless. You know, I'm gonna find myself right back in the same cycle. And yet we look at the resurrection. I say, you see, this is why it's important. I don't just describe that God became a man. Christmas is so cool. Look at this. He walked and born in a manger. Yeah, but he came to earth so that he could die on a cross, but not just die. That's not where the story ends, right? Where does the story then move to? The resurrection. Why is the resurrection so important? Because if he can defeat death, then tell me, whatever cycle, whatever sin struggle, whatever, whatever brokenness or pattern your family or you've been involved in, how does the resurrection show me that God can't make you a new what? A new creation. See, that's why when we communicate the gospel, I'm not just communicating these words. I'm helping people understand the truth of what God has done for us because it actually reaches down to those, those, those greatest places that only God can meet. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes the Jew first and the Gentile and then notice as we get down to the last like hopelessness it's just never going to get better look at this terrible world look at all these things that are going on <sighs> Jesus is coming back like as I begin to explain the truth the story of the gospel and that was what Paul was saying you turn from from idols to God 
And as he begins to describe, like, what was this message? This is the message he communicated. God became one of us to save all of us, died on a cross, resurrected, and guess what? He's coming back. That created a sense of momentum and, and anticipation and excitement. How do we live in the light of him returning? Like, he's coming back. Guys, I got to tell everybody else he's coming back. Like, that's what started to happen in Thessalonica. Did you hear? Do you know that Jesus is coming back? Have you heard about Jesus? Let me tell you about Jesus. Like, they were just, they were, they were actually so aware that Jesus was coming back, they thought they missed it, right? Like, that's actually going to be part of the, the message that we see as we get through the book. Notice, as Paul begins to describe what happened, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Guys, it's more than just saying, I'm a Christian. I, I, I want you to communicate that. But in a world that is hurting, struggling with all kinds of idolatry, they're trying to fill that void with someone or something other than Jesus and it's not satisfying. Part of what we communicate in what Jesus did, his death, his resurrection, it is so important. That's what's transformative, you know, in reaching down into those places of people's hearts. As Paul closes the message there, notice how he closes here. And this is where we'll begin to wrap up and land the plane. So this is how he closes the message in the Areopagus. He says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, talking about the idolatry of all these other nations. He says, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered and others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Like Paul didn't hold anything back in communicating the message of who Jesus is, what he did, his death and his resurrection, declaring this is Messiah. This, he alone is God. Only God could do this. And guess what? He is coming back and he is drawing a line in the sand. We will be judged based on this truth. There comes a moment where the gospel does a what? It draws a line in the sand between idolatry and Jesus. It draws a line in the sand that I can no longer say I don't know. That these false gods and these false things and these other things that I'm putting my trust into, I can't just say, well, that's, that's just what I grew up with. Or that's just what I know. Once the message of the gospel is preached, this is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. Who do you say that I am? He loves you. He died on a cross for you, resurrected. There's a line drawn in the sand at some point. Like I will stand before God and that question, what did I do with Jesus? In the parable of the soils, it says the farmer goes out and scatters the what? Scatters the seed. There's four different soils that are described. But here's what happens. The seed reveals the soil. The seed goes out in every single soil. But what happens is where the seed goes, we begin to see what kind of soil it is. And as you and I begin to describe the message, who Jesus is, what he's done, it begins to impact people's heart. They have to make a choice. Do they harden their heart and just like, ah, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. Do they be like, oh, that sounds really good until something difficult and a struggle comes in. Like, oh man, this wasn't very lucky. I'm done with this. You know, or in the midst of all of the trials and the chaos, just like you, as you guys are going through like the storm, like we were singing about, like, you know what? But Jesus is my anchor. It's true. He's real. My life is being transformed. My, 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 my mind is being renewed. I'm experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. I have this hope of heaven. It's like, wow, where'd that all come from? The gospel. But it's true. The gospel draws a line in the sand. I'll close with this story. Jesus gives us this example in Mark chapter 17. You guys know the story. Just touch on as we talk about drawing a line in the sand. Verse 17 of chapter 10, Jesus started on his way. A man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him and said, good teacher. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good question, right? 
Guy says, Jesus, what can I do to inherit eternal life? We get a little insight into what he thinks about Jesus. Calls him just a good what? Teacher, good rabbi, good communicator. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your, <coughs> honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, the second time he's called him teacher. All these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and what? And he loved him. And one thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Guy asks a wonderful question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But he had this, had this understanding of his self-righteousness. Look at all this stuff that I've done. Jesus, where's my gold star? Jesus was a good teacher in his mind. But as he was digging to something a little bit deeper, your self-righteousness, the sense that you have done enough to get to heaven, you're just waiting for the stamp. And Jesus, because he loved him, wanted to reveal something about his heart, wanted to reveal something that this guy was putting all his trust in. You know, you think you've put your trust in God, that you're doing this like out of worship and obedience to God. But if I'm God and I'm good, let me give you a test. And it says Jesus loved him. He didn't do this because he was being mean to him or mad at him. He didn't ask everybody to do this, but he was putting his finger right on a, a particular aspect of his heart. So I want you to take everything you have, sell it to the poor, notice. And then he says, look, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Like Jesus is making him a promise. I'll make, it, I'll make an exchange with you. Take what you have, sell it to the poor, You'll have treasure in heaven. And guess what? Come follow me. Let go of this stuff and come grab onto me. Like that's the invitation. You should notice how the story closes though. And the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. In this story, we see that it's possible when Jesus puts his finger on something in your life that might actually be holding you back. Something else that you're putting your trust in rather than Jesus Rather than the gospel, like this guy actually is like, I can't do that. Like this is just too valuable. It's too important to me. And there are a number of people who are putting that kind of <clears throat> security into something other than Jesus. Job, finances, relationships, identity, all kinds of things. And maybe Jesus is putting his finger right on that thing and saying, because I love you, I'm telling you, will you love me more than this? And there will be some people that are actually gonna say no. I pray to God that before the moment they take their last breath, they recognize like the thief on the cross. But the sad part is you actually get a choice. And as we think about idolatry, that's, that's part of the idea that Jesus doesn't wanna share your heart. He doesn't wanna split. We don't want like, I got my altar to Jesus. I do the Sunday thing. And then the rest of the week, I've got this whole way that I worship all these other gods of business and identity and all the rest of this. No, 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 no. Does Jesus get all of you? Get all of you in your home? Get all of you outside of your home? Does he get you, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength? We're gonna take a moment and we're gonna just close out in prayer. And I just want this story to sit with you as we're closing out in prayer today. What would Jesus wanna say to you? Is there any little rival throne, anything competing for God's love, God's attention, the message of the gospel in your heart? If there is, this is the moment to get right with Jesus because there's a world out there who's in need of the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. And it starts right here in this room today. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning, as we think about the power of this message there in Thessalonica, 
as the story of the gospel, the greatest story ever told. God fulfilling his promises, walking on earth, proving and demonstrating his power over sin, over death, over darkness, transforming the weak, the hurting, the lost, and the broken. Lord, we look to you and what you did on the cross, and we recognize, Lord, that it was enough. Lord, that even all of our righteousness, all the things that we're trying to do to earn it, to try to somehow earn your love, Lord, those are just filthy rags. You want us to accept your grace, your love, because of what you've done, because of who you are. And Lord, right now, as we're thinking about this message, we think about the rich young ruler, we think about maybe those in Thessalonica who just, or those in Athens, Lord, who maybe they were struggling with this idea of letting go of some of those other things, Lord, that they put their hope, their identity, their security in. And this morning, Lord, I wanna pray for that person this morning who just kind of needs to let go, who needs to grab onto you. That person who's been holding on, Lord, to this other security, this other identity, this thing, Lord, that if they, they feel if they lost it, they just don't even know how they would go on. And this morning, Lord, I pray that your love, that your grace, that the power of your Holy Spirit, the promise of eternity with you, Lord, that all of that would begin to transform, renew our hearts and minds. And I pray, Lord, as we begin to let go and grab onto you, that not only would we experience your love and your grace and your power, but Lord, there's a whole circle of friends and family right now whose lives are rooted in all kinds of this other idolatry and they need to know. So this morning, Lord, we pray for just a fresh outpouring of your spirit. Help us to lay these other things down. Lord, to follow you, not just on Sunday, but Monday and Tuesday. Lord, may every day be an opportunity for us to shine the light, the love, the truth of the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Let's stand.